This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 100. Wow. Yes, 100 episodes. Who would have thought? Wow, fireworks. Uh, I don't think it's wise to set them off in my basement. There's a fire extinguisher by the furnace. Thanks. <laughs> For the 100th episode, I thought I would tell my favorite ultra-running history story that I uncovered about five years ago. I will tell the story of the true first finishers of Western States 100, Sign up for the race I put on in the West Desert of Utah this coming October, the Pony Express Trail 50 and 100. It would be great to meet you. Visit PonyExpress100.org. Will do. Toward the end of this episode, I will interview a very special guest about this story, so hang in there to the end. Okay. Now to the story. In Auburn, California, on the evening of July 30th, 1972, an awards banquet was held at the fairgrounds for the finishers of the Western States Trail Ride, also known as the Tevis Cup. There was additional excitement that year among the exhausted riders who early that morning had finished the most famous endurance ride in the world. Not only would the 93 riders receive their shiny finisher belt buckles, but they would see a trophy awarded to the first person in history to finish the famed trail, not on a horse, but on foot. The special trophy was made and would be presented by the ride's founder and president, Wendell Roby. But when the trophy was presented, it was not awarded to Gordy Ainsley. He was not the first finisher of Western States on foot. Ainsley was in the audience and watched the trophy and other awards go to the true first finishers on foot. It would not be until two years later that he would complete his famed run on the Western States Trail on foot during the ride. Today, where is the historic trophy for the first finisher on foot? It likely resides forgotten in a dusty storage room in Fort Riley, Kansas, 140 miles west of Kansas City. Perhaps similar to the depiction in the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, the trophy will stay hidden for another 50 years. What is the true story behind this first finishers on foot trophy, and who received it? It was a front page story in the Auburn Journal that was later forgotten and purposely buried by the original Western States Endurance Run Board. The true Western States first finisher story started in 1967 with a young woman named Mary Lyles of Visalia, California. She was a very experienced rider and completed the Western States trail ride that year. Two years later, she married Joseph McCarthy, who was in the Army and soon was sent off to fight the Vietnam War. After returning from the war, Captain McCarthy was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas. He became the leader of an exclusive adventure team consisting of many Vietnam veterans still in the service. As he was looking for a hard endurance adventure to test his team, his wife Mary proposed that the team try to cover the Western States Trail on foot with the horses 
during the Western States trail ride that year. McCarthy loved the idea and received initial approval from Fort Riley Post Commander General Edward M. Flanagan, Jr., who had formed the adventure team. Having the team climb over the Sierra for 100 miles in military-issue leather boots and fatigues could be viewed as fun for recruiting purposes. Early in 1972, McCarthy contacted Wendell Roby, the president of the Western States Trail Ride, to ask permission for his team to march the trail during the upcoming ride. He explained to Roby, The Army has a new program of providing its men with challenges that give them an opportunity to see the country. It's adventure training, providing an incentive challenge rather than marching in circles. Roby was thrilled about the idea and had visions that Auburn would someday be the endurance capital of the world. He pledged his support and planned to prepare a, quote, first finisher on foot trophy. In February, more than five months before the ride, news went out about the attempt in the Auburn Journal, which stated, We are sure the troopers will make it to the finish line, or at least to Michigan Bluff. At Fort Riley, 20 soldiers were selected by competition among 50 volunteers for the Western States March. Ten others would also be bussed out with them to provide support. McCarthy would be their commander and crew chief, and Lieutenant Larry Hall would be their march leader. The team trained under the direction of Hall for four months before the historic march by doing five-mile group runs up and down the small hills in Kansas, also made a few longer hikes and ran daily. With about three weeks to go, they marched 30 miles in six hours in brutal heat that reached 102 degrees and in 96% humidity. But nothing they did in Kansas sufficiently prepared them for what lay ahead. At the fort, they were at times referred to as, quote, the new Lewis and Clark expedition. The army prepared medals for any who would finish the march. A couple weeks later, before the historic event, McCarthy and Hall went to California to meet with Roby to plan the march. Roby and Jim Carrier of the Forest Service took the two men to preview the Western States Trail. As they went over the map, Roby suggested that they start a day before the ride, which would give them 48 hours to complete the course on foot, well before the awards dinner that would be held that Sunday at 6 p.m. Roby also arranged for an experienced Tevis rider and distance runner, Jim Larimer, to accompany the soldiers with his horse as a guide. With two weeks to go, the team completed their training with a 50-mile march. Trained or not, the 20 soldiers and their support staff boarded their bus to California, blowing a fair amount of coin and drinking hard at their last stop in Reno, Nevada, before arriving at Squaw Valley. As they approached the High Sierra, jokes were made that they were not in Kansas anymore. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Most of them were cocky that the mountainous march would be no problem, but down deep they were having second thoughts about what lay before them. In the high Sierra. One of the soldiers who would march said, We did not expect the terrain to be so difficult. 
As he looked at the mountain peaks, he thought, This is going to hurt. Another said, It was the first time I had been in the western part of the country, and the size of the mountains really scared me. The soldiers set up a makeshift camp in Squaw Valley, and soon many of the more than 170 riders and crews also arrived and filled up the valley preparing their horses for inspection. The 20 soldiers started on the morning of July 28, 1972 at about 8.30 a.m. A number of curious riders watched the soldiers start. The soldiers, guided by Larimer and his horse, set off to a nice round of cheers. Immediately, they faced a 2,500-foot climb to Emigrant Pass at 8,750 feet. Enthusiastic chatter was quickly replaced by labored breathing, and they strained to climb into the thin air. Soon, the team was strung out into different groups. Their one-quart canteens quickly became low, even though they were supposed to sustain them until the first checkpoint 20 miles forward. The stragglers began to hold up the team. After the exhausting climb to the pass, it was easy to see that if they stayed together they would never finish, so they broke up into teams of three. Each team could go at their own pace and the march evolved into a race between the men. Alan Pinciero of Massachusetts, who had just returned from Vietnam, teamed up with two, quote, West Pointers who had not served in the war. The threesome would march together all day and into the night. One of the West Pointers had complained early and wanted to quit after just one mile. They wore olive green military fatigues, military issue leather boots, did not wear packs and carried no food. They only carried canteens and would use the Western States Trail Ride checkpoints to refill water and wolf down food. As blisters started to develop, they would change to fresh white military socks, which they carried in their pockets or hung from their pistol belts. The soldiers continued throughout the day upon the high ridges and down into the hot valleys. During the afternoon, as Pensiero and the West Pointers looked down into a beautiful valley, they were astonished to see a bear down below hunting around looking for food. That made them realize that great caution would be needed because unfriendlies could be encountered along the way. Pensiero carried three canteens of water with him, but the West Pointers only carried one each. Both soon became empty. Pensiero bailed them out by sharing his but before they arrived at the first checkpoint, all their canteens were dry as a bone. The West Pointers continued to complain and talked constantly about quitting. Pinciero became concerned about the very white lips on one of his companions covered with salt. During the afternoon, their leader, Lieutenant Hall, further ahead with two others, flagged down a logging truck with a handful of canteens to get them to a water source. By all accounts, the water situation was a constant struggle all day until it cooled down into the evening. Hall said, We weren't expected a shortage of water at all. We had been told that there would be water all along the trail, but a dry spell in the area had dried up the streams. Sergeant Mike Paduano said, When I found out we were out of water, I didn't think anybody would finish the walk. I don't see how we made it those first 20 miles. 
I guess it was by watching the scenery that kept me going. During the evening, as Pinciero and the two West Pointers neared Robinson Flat, mile 34, they stopped to lay down in a stream to cool themselves off. As they enjoyed the break from the labored march, they heard an alarming loud noise up the stream. With the memories of the bear they had seen earlier in the day, all three sprang up with amazing quickness. Let's get out of here! Pinciero recalled that he, quote, had never seen men run so fast. They ran several hundred yards to get away from there, becoming runners, not just marchers. Once they reached Robinson Flat, the West Pointers called it quits, but Pinciero was still in the game. He went on alone, sometimes catching up with another soldier, but kept his own pace. Nine soldiers dropped out at Robinson Flat, some suffering severe altitude fatigue sickness, and some too dehydrated to go on. Many had run out of water. A couple dehydrated men had to be taken to the hospital. Their guide Larimer used his horse to take one dropping soldier the rest of the way to the checkpoint. Eleven men remained, continuing into the night. Sergeant Ken Cruzel was teamed up with Specialist Greg Belgardi, an Alaskan native, and Sergeant David Linnell. Suddenly, Belgardi's face was covered with gushing blood from a spontaneous and prolific nosebleed. Hold back your head, barked Cruzel, willing the blood to stop. Belgardi did his best to staunch the flow. Blood dripped onto his green fatigues and black leather boots. Just give me a bit, protested Belgardi. I need to sit and get this under control. Cruzel knew not to leave a buddy behind, but they needed to continue to make progress if they hoped to finish. He replied, Okay, Belgardi, Lenau and I will push on. Do what you can. Belgardi responded, Roger that. I can fix it. A few miles later, in the dark, Cruzel and Lenau saw a light approaching from the rear. Who is that? murmured Lenau, wondering if his eyes were playing tricks on him. Cruzel squinted, holding up his angle head flashlight. A figure approached, the chest of his green fatigues covered in blood, his white teeth flashing a grin. It was Belgardi. Cruzel smiled and said, That's one tough critter. Now reunited, the three moved through the night. Last Chance, Mile 40, was originally planned to be the location for a short sleep stop, and several of the soldiers rested, ate, slept, and then continued on after two hours, but others did not stop. One observer stated, Half of the battle was mental attitude. They hypnotized themselves and kept going. Specialist Joe Hindley of New Jersey was a talented photographer and artist who was assigned to photograph the historic event. Roby provided him with a vehicle and driver who would take him to each checkpoint to take pictures of the men as they came through. Servicemen from a local army post also came to the event to serve as the group's crew. With the soldiers scattered along the trail for miles, it was stressful for the support crews to figure out where they should be to help. The next afternoon, a group of worn-out soldiers arrived at Michigan Bluff, mile 60. 
Hal Hall, age 17, the leading rider in the endurance ride, caught up with them. He recalled, They looked a bit whipped. Their faces were blush red, they were sweating and generally looked tired. They were under a shady tree, most of them seated, and some laying on the ground. Some were shirtless as they filled canteens and wetted bandanas for their heads. At this point, Larimer, their guide, left his horse Smoke behind and continued the rest of the way on foot with a few soldiers. At mile 79, Pinciero marched along through the second night. On a pace to finish was the lone soldier at Echo Hills, the 85-mile checkpoint. At each checkpoint, the soldiers were provided food that mostly consisted of freeze-dried long-range patrol rations, or LRPs, the predecessor of Meals Ready to Eat, MREs. The local servicemen heated up a pot of water for Pensiero, and he dumped a dehydrated LRP ration in the pot. But as he began to eat, his sunburned, worn-out lips were burned badly by the hot and salty meal. Ouch! Quickly after that, he fell into a deep sleep. Sadly, no one would wake him up until the morning when it was too late to continue. He was very disappointed that he came so close but did not finish. But he was relieved that his march of torture was over and was taken to the local army post to clean up and rest. By mile 85, there were seven remaining soldiers continuing. One of them, PFC Mike Savage, lagged a few miles behind. Riders, including Gordy Ainsley, passed by them all night. Lieutenant Hall said, We had to stick together toward the end. We needed a collective effort to finish. There were times when one of us would feel like quitting, but the added moral support kept us together. The rhythmic plod, plod, plod of leather boots dominated the sound of that very early Sunday morning, occasionally broken by a barking dog or an occasional clip-clopping of a rider passing them with a keep it up or looking good. The riders shook their heads in disbelief, sympathy, or amazement. After perhaps the longest night of their lives, the soldiers saw lights ahead, the unmistakable finish. The lead soldiers and Larimer entered the McCann Stadium at the Gold County Fairgrounds. Hall, the rider who finished many hours before, got up occasionally to walk his horse so it would not stiffen up. He hoped to see the soldiers' arrival and was awake when they came into the lighted stadium. Cheers went up with congratulations all around. Their finish time was 44 hours, 54 minutes. Still out on the trail, Savage made painfully slow progress. All of the horses had passed him, and he was greeted from behind by a rider making sure everyone made it off the course safely. This sweeper got off his horse and walked with the limping Savage to the finish. Savage finished in 46 hours, 49 minutes. The first to cover the Western States 100 course on foot during the endurance ride were Larry Hall, Mike Paduano, Greg Belgardi, Ken Cruzel, Dave Lenau, John Johansson, and Mike Savage. One soldier said, It's a once in a lifetime thing. I'll never do it again unless I had to. But what a great sense of satisfaction to have finished. I had no regrets that I did it, but I will never do it again. To a man, none of them did anything like it again.
They reveled in their accomplishment, but later looked back on it with a shudder like many soldiers do when surveying their careers and combat deployments. After resting all day, later that night at the awards banquet, the soldiers received a special plaque recognizing the first Auburn Endurance March presented to Lieutenant Hall by William Penn Mott, the State Director of Parks and Recreation. The Army awarded additional commendations and medals. It was reported, Wendell Roby, President of the Western States Trail Ride Association, presented the first six finishers with a collective first finisher on foot trophy. The trophy will be displayed in the battalion's trophy case. Roby said that he hoped another group of soldiers would return the next year. The Fort Riley Post stated, this was the first time the trail had been competitively traveled on foot with a time factor involved. The soldiers were granted a one-week pass, perhaps their sweetest award. Details and pictures of their march appeared in the local newspaper the Auburn Journal and in other newspapers across the country. The soldiers eventually returned to Fort Riley and went on with their lives, never to return to Auburn. Two years later, in 1974, Gordy Ainsley accomplished his run on the Western States Trail and did it in just under 24 hours. The Western States 100 was established three years later, in 1977, by a group of horse endurance riders under Roby's direction. Sadly, they purposely buried the accomplishment of the dedicated soldiers and instead propped up a revisionist history claiming that Ainsley was the first to cover the course on foot and gave him all the credit. Ainsley ran with the story and further proclaimed that he invented trail ultra-running, an obvious falsehood that so many have believed. As the soldier's legacy faded, Ainsley's grew. In 1978, the Auburn Journal falsely mentioned that Ainsley was the first man ever to finish the 100-mile course and in 1979 hailed him as the first man to take the course on foot. Very faked Well, where are they now? As for the soldiers, most of them left the army within a few years of the march, losing contact with one another. Some have died. Ken Cruzel, one of the seven finishers was 72 years old in 2022, living in Michigan, and contributed to this story. Dave Lenau, also a finisher, today reflects on his achievement as he takes walk with his disabled son in the Missouri countryside. He didn't really appreciate what he and the others accomplished. While it meant a lot to him personally, he was content to allow it to be forgotten. Greg Belgardi, another finisher, the soldier from Alaska who had the prolific nosebleed, left the service in 1973 and sadly took his own life in 1985 at the age of 32. He is buried in Idaho. When his family was contacted during their research for this story, they were thrilled to learn details of his accomplishment. Michael Paduano, also one of the finishers, left the service and went into construction. He settled in Virginia and passed away suddenly in 2012, at the age of 60. He left behind a wife, two sons, and four grandchildren at the time of his death. He had told his son about the march and always said that, quote, it was a test of heart, either you wanted it or you didn't. Alan Pinciaro, who wasn't awakened at mile 85, 
left the service in 1974 and pursued a career in construction as a truck driver and heavy equipment operator. He now lives in Maine. When told that someone wanted to talk to him about the march, he searched his memory and started to laugh. He had never heard of the Western States Endurance Run, but was thrilled to learn that he was a pioneer of the run. Joe Hindley, who photographed the 1972 event for Fort Riley History, was thrilled to be contacted, working for the Department of Military History in Germany. He went on to be a very accomplished artist, has artwork hanging in the Pentagon, and lives in Michigan. Joseph McCarthy, the commander and crew chief of the team, in 2022 lived in Laconia, New Hampshire and was 76 years old. Jim Larimer of Forest Hill, California, the Soldier's Guide, completed eight Tevis Cups and one Western States 100. He was a trail supporter and explorer who embodied the endurance spirit. He passed away in 2013 at the age of 63, leaving behind a wife and two children. Edward Flanagan, the founder of the Fort Riley Adventure Team, retired from the military in 1978 after 36 years with the rank of Lieutenant General. He went on to author many books and was recognized as the nation's leading authority on airborne history. He settled in Beaufort, South Carolina, where he died at the age of 98 in 2019. The soldiers of Fort Riley proved that the Western States Trail could be covered on foot in one go. They were the true first finishers of Western States 100. Hopefully now they will not be forgotten and someday will be fully embraced into the carefully crafted Western States Endurance Run's history and results. I'm pleased now to be joined by Phil Lowry of Issaquah, Washington, who helped me research, interview, and write this episode. He was my ultra-running mentor when I was just a young pup of 45 with no 100-milers to my name. He has now finished about 70 100-milers and now is solidly running many 200-mile trail runs. Phil, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. I love podcasts, and it's always fun hanging out with you if I'm not sneaking up behind you trying to scare you in the middle of a race. <laughs> well, if you remember about five years ago, I sent you the news article about this story. What, what was your reaction, and why do you think this is important for ultra-running history? I grew up in that era back in the 70s, and my dad was a Vietnam veteran, actually. I knew quite a bit about the, the military mentality, and it didn't surprise me at all when I read the article that some general in Fort Riley had an idea, and all of a sudden, a bunch of guys ended up doing something crazy. <laughs> That's kind of how the Army works. And I'm an Army officer, too, so I get it. That's what often happens in the Army. People will try something out, and, and all of a sudden, you'll get funding and personnel and everything to support it and try some harebrained thing. And then it ends up working out okay. And that's why we do things like that, right? We, we kind of push the boundaries. But the other thing was, it really changed my perspective on how modern ultra running really came about. The myth was that Gordy Ainsley's horse came up lame. And so he went and ran it the first time and everybody was astounded. And how could a person ever do this? And it doesn't surprise me that this is how it happened. It, there were a lot of things that are very personal to me, ultra running, my army career, my history with the service, all those things kind of came together. And I thought, yeah, this really rings true. And then, of course, 
we both were doing a lot of investigation. I had a chance to talk to one of the soldiers on the phone and, you know, it was really quite enjoyable to get to know these folks and see what exactly happened. It took us a full year to find a lot of these people and it was a delightful experience talking to them, wasn't it? Oh, it was. What was most astounding to me is that soldiers are all the same and all of a sudden you have this bond with this individual. One thing that I love about the Army is that they're always making fun of the most morbid things you could ever imagine. And that was exactly the tone. I remember that. That was like the stupidest thing I think I'd ever done. And, and, and it was this, but I guess we got it done. So, hey, there wasn't a lot of navel gazing or soul searching about what an extraordinary profound experience this was. We were making history and we knew it. It's like, no, it's, it's not how it is. And they were trying to do something that they thought was cool because so you don't volunteer for something like this if you don't think it's kind of like badass, right? Like, oh, I'm a, yeah, let's go try this. I thought it was funny as we contacted them that at first they were very hesitant because really had to search their memory. Oh, that's right. We did that thing. This is not something that they have hanging on their mantle and that they talk about with their grandkids. I'll guarantee you that. They didn't realize that it turned into such a international race. And they were just astounded to hear that people actually are doing this now on purpose uh, for fun. We were these ambassadors from this world saying, do you realize what you mean to us? And they're like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And it was amazing that they accomplished it without really caring anything. No food, hardly any water. They were sucking on pebbles. And I think it was great that over time, once they settled into it all, it turned into a true competition between their little groups going along their way. They they really wanted to be the first until towards the end, they finally figured out that they needed to cooperate. Yeah. And the other thing that's really funny about it is their lieutenant really didn't know what the crap he was doing. You have a good platoon leader. You're going to have what's called unit cohesion. And if you have good unit cohesion, then they would have worked together a lot sooner. But they were improvising. They threw this thing together and they were doing their best. They did what a lot of soldiers do, which is they just go ahead and figure out that they have a common purpose. But they did finish it. Well, they did great. You know, most of them had been to Vietnam. I hope the sport will remember it. You know, Western States hasn't really embraced them, but I wish we as a sport will. That's unfortunate that you have service members who were veterans who participated in this. That's absolutely factually verifiable. Yet, for whatever reason, Western states is not admitting them to their self-created pantheon. They're actively spreading disinformation. They are feeding another narrative that is helping them rather than the narrative of the inconvenient truths that are out there with respect to these soldiers. They just need to say, yep, these people are a part of Western States history. Great. Well, thanks again for being on this podcast, and hopefully we'll see you on this trail one of these days again. Bye, man. With that, this is Davey Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, And most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.